good afternoon. You're listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of the Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. Thank you for joining us today as he opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Well, please turn the copies of the Word of God to the Psalm 124. And the psalmist says, If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, now Israel may say, If it had not been the Lord who was on our side when men rose up against us, then they had swallowed us up quick when the wrath was kindled against us. Then the waters had overwhelmed us. The stream had gone over our soul. Then the proud waters had gone over our soul. Blessed be the Lord, who hath not given us as a prey to their teeth. Our soul is escaped as a bird out of the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we are escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Amen. May God be pleased to bless his word to your hearts again tonight for his name's sake. For a long time now, I've, I've always sought to avoid what-if questions and what-if thinking. I think some of it goes back to, to the old days when I, when I used to try to play some sports. And after the game, you would go back and you'd ask all of these what-if questions. And what if I had made that tackle? What if I had passed that ball? What if I had done this or done that? Then perhaps we wouldn't have been losing and might have won the game after all. What if thinking is generally futile? It doesn't change anything. And so it is in life. And sometimes people get to the end of their lives and they say, what if I had taken this job or married that woman or moved to that town or done this or done that? What if, if, what if I had done all of these things? What if, what if, what if? How my life could have been so different? Well, the bottom line is when you get to the end of your life, you can ask all the what ifs you like, but the truth is you didn't. And therefore you can't change the past. And it's worth remembering as a child of God that God has ordained the path in which we walk. So there isn't much point in asking the what-ifs. And by the way, I'm not saying that you're not responsible to make wise decisions. I'm only saying that once you make them, then you must live with the decisions you've made. Yet here the psalmist engages helpfully in a different form of what-if. If... It had not been the Lord who was on our side. Here, the, the what if is helpful. It's helpful because it's not a question of what has not happened, but rather it's a question of what did happen. And rather than looking back and saying, if this had happened, then this would have come about, the psalmist is saying, because this did happen, then this did not happen. We've followed all the ifs and whens and all the rest of that. There's a difference. We look back at life and we say, if I had done this, then this would be different. Here the psalmist is saying, if God had not done this, then this would have happened. And so he's using it very helpfully to reflect upon the consequences that would be experienced if God had not been the help of his people. The what if of the psalmist here helps us see the consequences if God's people were to live their lives 
without God. The issue of God as our helper here recurs in verse number 8. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Again, the, the concept of the name of God, I'm not going into it again tonight, but the concept there is his name is used as a summary of all that he is in his attributes and in his works. And therefore the psalmist is saying, our help is in the Lord. Again, it takes us back to the Psalm 121, where we saw, uh, again, the, the, the psalmist lifting up his eyes and looking for help from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord, which made heaven and earth. And so again, you see in verse number 8, the, the sense of God's power and God's sovereignty. He is the one who's able to make heaven and earth, and he's the one who did make heaven and earth. He's the one who rules over heaven and earth, and he is our help. Our help is in the name of the Lord. God is pleased to protect us in the trials. Again, we saw in Psalm 121 that the concept of help in that psalm, again, centers on the idea of protection. God preserving us from all evil. In Psalm 121, the need for help is very general. That term is used, all evil. And yet here, the focus of the psalmist in Psalm 124 lies on the opposition that comes from the adversary. And so the first thing I want to see, and just, just three things I want to highlight tonight, and the first thing is the adversaries of God's people. There are those in verse number two who are said, when men rose up against us. And those words against us, they make us think of adversaries, those who are opposed to your well-being. Anger is clearly seen, verse number three, when their wrath was kindled against us. They're angry against God's people, and that anger leads to their actions regarding their opposition to the people of God. Anger may not always be seen. Anger can be hidden, and then it can be seen in actions rather than somebody going into a rage. Their rage is seen in how they treat the other person, not necessarily in blowing the fuse and shouting and screaming, but in trying to hinder the well-being of the other party. So anger is clearly part here of the adversary's motivation. It's also worth remembering that when you read a psalm like this, you should read behind the psalm the authority of the devil. The devil is the authority who works against the people of God. Again, that's clear throughout the Word of God. But you could turn to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. And here you'll see an insight into uh, the, the, the authority of the devil in his desire to, to ruin God's people. Again, Revelation 12 is the beginning of one of the, uh, the cycles in Revelation. It starts with the birth of a child. And the birth of the child who, uh, again, in verse number 5, is to rule all nations with the rod of Aaron. The child caught unto God and to his throne. The child, of course, speaks of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The woman in view here is not Mary. It is the, the church giving birth to the child. And then in verse number 6, the woman fleds, flee, flies into the wilderness. And then you see in verse number 13, significant reference to the dragon. Again, of course, the dragon, verse 9, is that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. 
And what does the dragon do in verse number 13? And when the dragon saw that he was cast into the, onto the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness into her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent." Again, that's a reference to this present age, I believe. And then in verse 15, And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And then verse 17, And the dragon was wroth with the woman, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Again, we're not exploring all the, the various interpretations of Revelation chapter 12, because whatever your view is, you, you see the authority of the dragon as the one who wages war against those who keep the commandments of God. So however you interpret the details of Revelation chapter 12, you cannot deny that those who have the testimony of Jesus Christ are under the attack of the evil one. And so, you see the reference to floods, carried away in a flood in verse number 15, which again makes us think of Psalm 124 in the verse number 4. Then the waters had overwhelmed us, the stream had gone over our soul, then the proud waters had gone over our soul. I, I'm not suggesting that it's explicit here, but I am suggesting it's implied here that those who are the adversaries of God's people are working under an authority. And that authority is the devil himself. The aim, the aim of the adversaries is the destruction of God's people. Again, that's implied in the psalm. If the Lord had not been on our side, then we would have been destroyed. Then we would have been ruined. Now, the identity of these adversaries will vary. We know when we come to the New Testament terms that we are, we're not waging warfare against flesh and blood. There are principalities and powers. But Satan uses many different devices to hurt and to harm the people of God. He may use governments. He may use other believers. He may use worldlings. There are the Hamans of the world and the Herods of the world. There are the heretics. All of these things that are used by, by the evil one to seek to bring the ruin of God's people. And as they're under the adversary, they feel this anguish. Anguish is experienced here. Not the two terms that are used, the two, the two metaphors that are used to describe their experience. One is that of drowning, and the other one is that of being captured. The act of drowning. Now, when we're told that the person who drowns, they, they, they lose consciousness very, very rapidly. But the experience here of the psalmist is, is not in someone who's drowned, but rather in somebody who's alive and struggling. And the experience is fearful, anguish. And you see the same in the concept of the, of the captor in verse number 7. Our soul is escaped as a bird out of the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken. Verse number 6 refers to a capture who have not given us a prey to their teeth. The teeth there being the, the teeth of the trap. And again, you see an animal that is caught in a trap. And in that moment, they begin to struggle. And they do all they can to free themselves from the trap. Anguish is experienced. Consider those who lived in Ahab's time. When Elijah 
exposed the prophets of Baal as being charlatans, as being false prophets. And there's great triumph. But then nothing changes. Elijah finds himself under the death threat and Jezebel's out to kill Elijah. Elijah suffers. He suffers badly at that time and he, he's conscious. He's conscious that he feels that he's alone. And in 1 Kings 19, you see in verse number 4 the experience of Elijah where he says, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. In Ahab's times, there was a great sense of, of wickedness. Elijah felt his sense of, of isolation. And so verse number 10, it says, I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And yet the Lord comes and he encourages them in verse number 18 by saying, Yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. So what are we seeing here? Well, we're seeing the anguish of a child of God who feels as if the work of God is about to come to nothing. The sense of the adversary through Ahab and Jezebel is so strong that God's name and God's cause is about to be wiped out altogether. And the anguish of being under the flood and in the trap and the consciousness of you're one of those 7,000. How would you feel at that time? Surely you'd feel the anguish and the fear. You think of how the faithful must have felt prior to the Reformation. You think of the Lollards in 14th century England, those who followed Wycliffe. You think of how they must have felt that anguish that where was the light of God in all the world? So few candles burning in distant places, and every time they turned, it was of the candle being snuffed out. The adversaries of God's people seek to, to wreak havoc upon the work and the welfare of God. We live in days when there are adversaries, and the strength of the foe is taught here, indeed, it is felt here. If it had not been the Lord, we would have been ruined. If it had not been the Lord in Elijah's day, then Ahab and Jezebel, they would have overcome the work of God. If it had not been the Lord in Wycliffe days, if it had not been the Lord, then ruin would have been felt. The adversaries of God's people are strong, and we should not underestimate their strength as we seek to serve God in these days. But the second thing to note then is the ally of God's people. The Lord is on our side. That's what an ally is, someone on our side. You know, this phrase just really has been on my mind the last couple of days in preparation for tonight. Whose side is the Lord on? You get all sorts of people claiming the God's on their side. Politicians, sports people, all sorts of ideas. They make this bold assertion that God's on my side. So who is, or what side is God on? You might say it's an easy answer, the Lord is on his people's side. But that actually leads to the real answer. The Lord is on the side of his chosen people. You see it in the word that the Lord comes to the defense of those he has chosen to love. You see that the Lord's defense is for those who he cares for in his covenant 
This idea of God being on someone's side is not that there are two opposition foes in conflict and God picks a side. Rather, what happens, God chooses his people. Conflict follows even as a result of that choice, but God is on their side. Election, eternal love, covenant promises, those are the people on whose side God is. The ground of his coming is in his covenant electing love. That is why he is our help. That is why he is on our side. I want to trace that with you through the word of God. Turn back quickly to, to Genesis. Genesis chapter 15. And what I want you to see here is the, the theme in the word of God, where we know God is showing himself to be strong in protecting grace. Showing himself to be on someone's side. Genesis 15 and verse number 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abraham in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abraham, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Of course, the conflict is in God's sovereign choice of Abraham from Ur of the Chaldees to be the father of the nations. It's God's sovereign choice to select Abraham to be the father in whom the nations will be blessed. It's a covenantal chapter, a covenant that is sealed and that is ratified. And in the context of that covenant, it comes as, I am thy shield. Protection is involved here. The word shield there is used in Psalm 7. And the verse number 10, in Psalm 7 verse 10, where it says, My defense is of God, which saveth the upright in heart. Defense and shield is a promise. God's coming to Abraham in covenant, and it says, I'll be your shield. And then Deuteronomy chapter 33. Turn over please to Deuteronomy 33, and the verse number 29. Happy art thou, O Israel, who is like unto thee, O people, saved by the Lord, the shield of thy help, and who is the sword of thy excellency, and thine enemies shall be found liars unto thee, and thou shalt tread upon their high places. And this is language in the context of God's covenant. These are the people who are happy, and God is going to be their shield, but again, it's electing covenant security. Because of who they are as God's people, therefore he is their shield. You think of how they were chosen, not because of their number or their strength. Deuteronomy 7 verse 6 and following, it's because the Lord put his love upon them. So there's love, election, covenant and love. And therefore God says, I am your shield. You look at Joshua chapter 5. Joshua 5 in the verse number 13. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho, they lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there stood a man over against him with the sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went unto him and said unto him, Art thou for us or for our adversaries? Whose side are you on? And he says, Nay, but as captain of the host of the Lord am I now come. I come to rule. I come as the captain of those. And it is very clear whose side he's on. You see that in chapter 6. But the promise again is of covenant purposes. God is going to give him the land, the land that he's promised. Let me take one more, 2 Kings 6. Here you have the account of Elisha. 
And again, the adversaries are against Elisha. He's the one who the king of Syria thinks is, is leaking the news regarding his plans. Every time the king of Syria went to go somewhere, he came to nothing. And he blames Elisha and he sends the army. And then you get to verse number 16. And he answered, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And Elisha prayed, said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes, that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. God is with his people. God is with his truth. The Lord loves and chooses his people. He attaches his name to their well-being. Then he's on their side. Our response should be, of course the Lord is on our side. Thus, in the opposition of the foe, God in Psalm 124 brought them protection and victory. Oh yes, there are times, of course, in the Old Testament where we find the people of God being chastened and suffering defeat. But the psalmist is simply asserting how bad things would have been if the people had been left to themselves. God is our ally in electing covenant love, which leads in closing to the assurance of God's people. Let me bring Psalm 124 up to the present day. We are not a nation fighting foes, but we, of course, are still in a conflict, not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and those forces of wickedness. And thus you see the experience of the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he describes the sense of the adversaries coming upon him. He's going to be swept away, but yet it says, verse 17 of 2 Timothy 4, Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me. The Lord's on his side and strengthened me, that by me the preaching might be fully known. Of course, this reflects the accounts in Acts. The Lord is on the side of his church, his chosen people in the book of Acts. But please turn to Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, you have these glorious words in the verse number 31. What shall we then say to these things if God be for us? If you like, if God be on our side, who can be against us? And do you note the context where do we see God's protection in the Old Testament? God is on the side of those he has chosen in covenantal love. And therefore, in covenantal love, he secures their well-being and their safety. And what do we see? What are these things in verse number 31? What shall we then say to these things? What things? We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he did foreknow, he also predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. God's sovereign foreknowledge. God loved them, he elected them, and therefore in light of these things, if God be for us, who can be against us? And Paul answers his own question. Nothing can be against us. Verse number 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation? No. Distress? No. Persecution? No. Famine? No. Nakedness? No. Peril? No. Sword? No. All of these things. Verse number 38. Death? No. Life? No. Angels? No. Principalities? No. Powers? No. 
things present nor things to come, no and no. If God be for us, no one can successfully be against us. It is not a denial of the presence of adversaries. It is the assurance that though adversaries be present, they shall not succeed. In our conflict, the Lord is still on our side. Again, this has been very general tonight because your adversaries will vary from person to person, from time to time in your life. But whatever your conflict may be today or in the days to come, you have the knowledge as a child of God, elect and called into covenant fellowship that God's on your side. He intervenes, I believe, often in ways that we do not see. Amen. There are times in our lives when God has stepped in and we knew nothing about it. Amen. We are like the blind servant of Elisha. Our eyes are closed to see the forces of heaven that are reeled on our side so that we do not come to ruin when we could have come to ruin. God also, in his mercy, is pleased to give us the protection of his church, the protection of oversight, the protection of the preaching of the word, these things that God uses to come alongside us, to be on our side. He provides for us armor. Ephesians chapter 6, he provides truth to protect us. The helmet, though the adversary would blow against our minds, we have salvation to protect our heads. Our thinking is secure. Because of God's provision of a helmet of salvation, the Lord is on the side of his beloved elect. What ruin would have come upon the church but for God? What ruin would have come upon our lives but for the Lord? What sins would I have succumbed to but for him providing the way of escape? What errors would I have been deceived by but for the Lord's grace? How many times would I have given up thrown in the towel, turned back if it had not been the Lord who came to my side. This is a cause for reflection. It's a cause for you all individually and personally to say, where would you be tonight but for God? You say it, but it's good to think about it again, isn't it? If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, now, put your own name in there. Now, I may say, I would have been ruined and destroyed. Dear people, without God, we are nothing. We have no strength. We have no security. We have no future. But the Lord is on our side. Therefore, let Israel now say, if God be for us, who can be against us? Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Tuesday evening at 7 p.m. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We preach Christ crucified.